This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra, extra special guest. It's the return of Jack Brennan. He is the former CEO and chairman of the Vanguard Group. And what can I tell you? This is just a tour de force about rational investing strategies, behavior, psychology. There are a few people in the world who have Brennan's depth of experience and perspective, not just because he worked with Jack Bogle for dozens of years and was Bogle's handpicked successor to run the Vanguard Group, but he's done a variety of other things. He's on all sorts of other boards. He sees the world of investing and business and finance um, from a 360-degree perspective. I find him not only just fascinating and intelligent and sincere, but really one of the few people who has that full view of everything, his perspectives, his opinions are very well informed and, and, and really matter a great deal. I found this to be a fascinating conversation, and I think you will also. So with no further ado, the former chairman and CEO of the Vanguard Group, Jack Brennan. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest is Jack Brennan. He was the CEO and chairman of the Vanguard Group from 1996 to 2008. He is currently chairman of Notre Dame's Board of Trustees, as well as being on a variety of other boards. He is the author of a new book, More Straight Talk on Investing, Lessons for a Lifetime. Jack Brennan, welcome back to Bloomberg. Great to be with you, Barry. Good to have you back. I recall our last conversation was quite fascinating a couple of years ago, but for people who may have missed it, let, let's just spend a few minutes going over your history. You, you joined Vanguard in 1982, serving as the company's president alongside Jack Bogle, the founder and CEO of Vanguard. Tell us a little bit what it was like in the 80s and what it was like working with a legend like Jack Bogle. Well, listen, it was a gift to be hired by Jack Bogle and to join Vanguard when I did. Vanguard was a quite small place for $4 billion in assets uh, under management. The industry, as you might recall, back in 82, was driven mostly by money market funds. You know, stocks hadn't done much for a long time. Bonds had been terrible because we were in the, the stagflation era coming out of it. But the, the chance to work side-by-side side with someone like Jack, who'd been in the business since the day he graduated from Princeton in 1951, was extraordinary. Uh, you know, we had lunch together nearly every day when I was in town, over 13-plus years I learned a ton of stuff from him in so many ways, as did the whole team uh, of us that were part of the early days of the growth phase of Vanguard from uh, 82 as the markets turned around and it turned into be a pretty good business. Uh, okay, we had a lot of fun, went through lots of business challenges, many of which were challenges of success. How do you keep a place together as you grow at 100% some years uh, and at you know, 20, 30, 40% compounded for all those years? We also went through on the personal side. You know, Jack had a lot of health challenges that uh, you know I tried to be helpful with, and obviously lived with him through those. I had some on my family side, and those kinds of things bond you as well, Barry, in a, in a way that's different than a conventional just a business relationship, and was really another shared experience. So, you know, you get lucky sometimes, and 
joining Vanguard and working with Jack and for Jack was tremendous. I was thinking about that the other day, actually, just a couple of years ago. You know, Jack had passed, Jack passed away, and we had a celebration of life for him uh, at Vanguard, and I was privileged to kick it off. It just had four things that are lessons, actually, maybe for your listeners uh, that really, you know, you think about what Vanguard is today. It was not that when Jack launched it in 1975, but four things were consistent and hopefully are very much still part of the company. And one was just the dedication to the mission of Vanguard. Those who followed Jack, he was continually on point about client, client, client. The second is passion for competitive success. You know, nobody liked to fight more than Jack. He'd pick one now and then uh, to try to get publicity for us and, uh, and things. But that focus on wanting to win, hugely, hugely valuable. Third thing that was remarkable, really, to watch and learn from is the power of communication and, you know, just consistency and continual, continually promoting, in a sense, what the message for the company was. Powerful force. And the last thing, uh, focus, you know, we'd have people come to us, Barry, continually saying, issue credit cards, do mortgages, do this. And Jack would always come back and say, you know, we do one thing pretty well. We manage packaged products in the form of mutual funds. Let's just go find people to buy them. So when Bogle finally stepped down, you were his handpicked successor. Did you feel the weight of that transition, or was he still not quite the legend he eventually became, and it, it didn't have the same gravitas that perhaps it does today? You know, in some ways, not so much, and in some ways, certainly you feel the weight of it. Uh, in a sense, the not so much was, you know, we'd just been hand in glove together for 13 years. I'd been on the board for nine or something like that, uh, the president for seven or eight. And, you know, most of the team that led the company, I'd either hired or promoted and mentored along the way. So so the internal aspects of change weren't, weren't very great in, in that sense. And so it was incredibly smooth. Uh, and frankly, when I'd been made the president in 1989, um, the board, had, he had announced that I would take his place, which was a little weird, but um, I think probably helpful in some ways uh, to internally in, in that regard. But the, the, the other part of it is, um, you know, Jack had been the CEO from 75 to 95 when this was announced, and I'm the new guy to some slice of the constituencies. And, uh, you know, in a sense, you have to prove yourself to, to, to people who knew Jack as the face of the company and were very different, different ideas around that role. Uh, but you, you feel the weight of it. And, you know, I don't know any CEO who, irrespective of, you know, his or her tenure at a company who the day they become the CEO, it, uh, they don't feel the weight of it. It's a different, it's different on day one than it was on day minus one when you become huh. a CEO. And uh, I, that was a surprise to me in some ways, I have to say. I, I didn't expect it, and I felt it, and I counsel new CEOs continually as they're you know, moving into jobs that they will feel it, and 100% of the people say, you're right, I get that. Huh. Really interesting. I love this quote you had in Business Week, where you said, quote, being famous was never on my agenda, unquote. And you tell the story, you're coaching your son's soccer team and another player's mom comes up to you and says, I didn't realize you were that Jack Brennan. She <laughs> thought you were a gym teacher. What was that transition like into the public eye? That was the hardest part of it, of, of it because it's just not me. I love having 
tons of responsibility at Vanguard and having nobody know my name. Have, have them think I was a gym teacher when I was coaching, right? And, uh, you know, you, you take the job, you have to make that change. And, you know, I'm a big believer that being the leader is notoriety enough and that any credit for stuff that happens positively in an organization should go to the team. Any blame that something that goes uh, awry, should, you should accept that as the leader. And so it, it, was, it was a challenge and, and an interesting one, particularly because you'll recall, you know, the fund industry was kind of on the sidelines in, in finance, if you will, when I started out there. And, and we were progressively, but by 95, 96, we were a very prominent part of the business. And so with all of the industry and, and company responsibilities, you really do have to change and adapt, then it's a growth opportunity for anybody who falls into that role. I think particularly challenging for someone like me whose uh, anonymity is something that is I highly prize, uh, which may seem like an odd, an odd comment as I do this thing, uh, do this interview with you, but it's, it's very much real. That was, I would say, hands down the hardest change for me as I uh, took over the, uh, as the CEO of the company. That's the beauty of radio. Nobody knows what you look like. Yeah, exactly. So, so, <laughs> so two questions about your leadership period at Vanguard. Tell us what you're most proud of from that period. And if you had a mulligan, if you can have a do-over for one thing, <laughs> what, what would that be? Yeah, I get asked the what are you most proud of question all the time, Barry. And I think of three things that, that matter. First and foremost is the team that you, you help put together over time, and particularly in a rapidly growing company where, you know, the team almost can't grow quickly enough to keep up with the, the challenges in the company. But, you know, from top to bottom, we were able to attract and help build great careers for people who had to sign on to this quirky mission in a quirky place where you're not a public company, you're not private, you're owned by your mutual fund shareholders. But maintaining and enhancing the commitment to that, to our mission and the intense competitive edge and zeal in the face of, you know, what in many ways is uh, remarkable success. That, that's a thing that I look back and, and I look today at Vanguard and see it there and really proud of that. You know, tangibly, the billions and billions and billions of incremental rewards you, you delivered to the shareholders because of our structure and because our funds perform well, a critically important part. And that's, that's what you're there for. That's why you put your shoes in, on every day. Um, you know, and then probably the last thing that I always like to uh, highlight is the culture which you would think would get diluted as it grew in you know by a hundred and then a thousand times would get diluted. I think the culture got stronger progressively and continues to get stronger around again the singular focus on the client and then even more important in many ways, always doing it the right way. So I look at that and say that's a that's a template. If somebody said you'll be around a long time and you'll feel this good about those three things, high on my list of things. The as to the mulligan, I might need a roving a few roving mulligans, right? In, in some ways, the uh, I once had a relatively new person, an officer at Vanguard. I think she was trying to insult me, and I thought she was complimenting me. She said I I live in a perpetual state of dissatisfaction. <laughs> and I think it is a compliment. I could give you a really long list, but I'll give you one thing that I look back and say we we had it right and didn't do it right, if you will, and that is advice and support for the advice community. 
you know, Vanguard today is a burgeoning uh, advice business uh, delivering uh, a, a great product at a great price. And we started in the advice business 25 years ago, but I, I wasn't aggressive and I wasn't aggressive enough in tell, saying we should really build this out in, in a form and fashion. And then as a compliment, be even more aggressive in supporting the the advisor community. And there was a legacy there. We used to be a load fund group. We became no load and so on. But it was clear to us that advice was going to be a crucial part of the investing future, and very importantly so. And if I look back and say, if there's one thing I would have spent a lot more money, put a lot more energy behind, it's that. And I'm really glad to see the companies doing it on both sides of that, by the way, delivering advice and then supporting advice providers. It's a core very core part of Vanguard today. I wish we'd been much more advanced during my time leading the company. Hmm, really interesting. Let's talk a little bit about your new book. By the way, am I reading this right? The first book was Straight Talk on Investing, correct? It was. Because I read that one, you know, it's got to be five years ago when we did our first interview and I plowed through whatever notes I had from that. Is this an update or is this a brand new book? It's a combination. Uh, it's in, okay. and one of the great lessons in redoing and doing another book is the core of the book really hasn't changed, actually. And then there's lots of, uh, you think about this first one was book published in 2002. So you've got the GFC, you've got the, you know, right. last year, you've got 20 years almost to say how the, it's the aftermath of the dot-com bubble of GFC and what we've been through. And you say, does what we wrote then withstand the test of time? It's actually its verities are enhanced by that test of time. And then there's some other new stuff, and we can talk about it. But it's the advent of Ritholtz Advisors and Vanguard's advisory services. It's uh-huh. the radical decline in cost of investing in 20 years. It's stunning, and some other stuff that uh, is important. So uh, it's a combination of new and new and reaffirmation of uh, what was in the prior book. Well, some of the basics from the other book is pretty timeless. Homework, good habits, no fads, stay, continue to learn. I mean, that's pretty straight talk as it gets. So tell us what motivated that approach. I I appreciate the term straight talk. I had uh, one of my colleagues at Vanguard the other day ask me, do I enjoy being boring? And, uh, and the, with, with this advice, but, you know, um, it, what motivates it is this is the time tested way serious money gets invested successfully. And that might be an endowment at a great university. It may be a pension fund. And this is really targeted at people who are their own personal financial entrepreneurs with their own assets and they can, get help from an advisor, they can do it themselves, whatever. But if you look back over decades and decades, very, in some ways, simple approach to investing, as you just highlighted, around homework, good habits, avoiding fads, is the proven strategy. And the problem is it's always challenged, right, by the new, new thing. And so, you know, we found we find that it's important to reaffirm these, test them, by the way, and there's Unlimited amounts of data, as you know, to, to look and, and, and test them. But you come back to these core principles that define success strategies for any of us, whether an institutional investor or an individual. So that's the, uh, 
that's the motivation of it. And, you know, for me personally, it's uh, I had the privilege of knowing Walter Morgan, who founded Wellington Fund in 1929. So in a sense, I've had live tutorial from Mr. Morgan to Jack. To now I'm now I'm the old guy. And uh, I had hired tens of advisors and advisory firms have observed millions of investors. And you come back to core character traits that define success, as you know. And in the end, there's two character traits that matter. One is humility and the other is discipline. And then there's some practices uh, that matter. And if you find that package in yourself or in your advisor or in the firm you hire to manage assets for you, you're going to be successful. And if you don't, the odds are you will not, and you will look jealously at uh, people who uh, follow these old school practices and old school behaviors and uh, have won the game. Hmm. Really interesting. Let's stick with the idea of character, uh, such as humility and discipline, and just ask the simple question, why are so many investors, quote, their own worst enemy, unquote? Uh, you know, one, one word, and it's emotion. Right. And and whether it's fear or greed, whether it's competitive juices that your sister-in-law made a killing in some stock, uh, whether it's overconfidence, whether it's an institution saying I've got a hustle or I'm going to get fired by an institutional client. It emotion is an incredible headwind to success in building and maintaining financial uh, security and, and through the markets. A story that's played out again and again and again over time. And, you know, so you need to understand that simple, I will be my own worst enemy unless I take emotion out of the equation. Hard to do. It's easier with experience. But that's the simple answer to it, Barry. Huh. Let's stick with the idea of emotion as a valid factor. And I have to ask you one of the things you write about. People should be more selective about the financial content they consume. Explain what you mean by that. You know, one of the best things that's happened in my career since the early 80s to today is the ability for individuals in particular, but all of us, to uh, learn. Whether in the early days it was Money Magazine and today it's just obviously the ubiquity of, of information uh, on, in online, through online uh, media, it's so different than, um, than it was a long time ago. The, the downside to that is it's like everything. Too much of a good thing is a bad thing. Right. And so there's too much information, too readily available, too broadly covered, that it's a distraction. And, you know, distraction will lead to other emotions, Barry. And that, that is the, uh, that is, I think, the, the core challenge, uh, and why people really need to say, I, I find, uh, certain writers on Bloomberg valuable to me, and I'm going to follow them because they provide me with information I find valuable as an investor. But zigging and bagging from this hot topic to that hot topic or this influencer to that, you know, prognosticator is just uh, damaging to your financial well-being. It always it, it is proven to be, and I suspect it always will be, because you know this isn't a game, and it's not how the Red Sox do last night, right? How the Red Sox did last night actually matters this year to their chances to make the playoffs. But what happened in the markets today? matters to almost nobody who you and I know. 
because they have long-term mm. time horizons, right? And they're not traders managing a book at a, at a Wall Street firm. They're people thinking about 10 and 20 and 40 years from now. So what happens today is insignificant. So let's continue with that thought. Sometimes bear markets come along, and, and that seems to be what drives a lot of the sort of hair-on-fire hand-waving in a lot of the media. How should people think about bear markets? How should they prepare for one? And how should they behave during a bear market? So, actually, in, in, uh, in more straight talk, we have a whole chapter on bear markets for a reason, and it's because they're an inevitable part of investing if you're investing over a career in a 401k plan or over a lifetime. So, one, you recognize they're going to happen. And then your question is uh, is spot on. You say, so what should we do? Well, one, you should, you know, on a strategic basis, know what your risk tolerance is and be prepared for that and test that risk tolerance against your portfolio structure, your diversification, your balance to say, am I going to be able to sleep at night if the market drops 20 or 30 percent? Fair question. And you should know it. And by the way, if you've only been investing in this century, you've had a chance to test that. How did you think? What did you think about it in October of 2008? What did you think about it in March of 2020? Could you not sleep, etc.? So you, you understand their reality. You prepare structurally in your portfolio and, importantly, in your uh, mental preparation. Am I going to react or am I going to assume that in, over my time horizon – this is uh, an, inevitable, an inevitable thing, but it, uh, I'm not going to do anything about it. Um, and the answer for most people is do nothing in a bear market. It really is, um, because most people have a long-term time horizon. I was talking to Tim Buckley, who's the CEO of Vanguard, great CEO of Vanguard, um, uh, the other day. And he said they calculated that by not panicking, Vanguard investors saved a trillion dollars. Wow. A trillion dollars. And the difference, the important thing that gets back to your question on what you consume from an education standpoint or an information standpoint, back when I started at Vanguard, the activity level with small changes in the stock or bond market was frenetic. Mm-hmm. Today, and Vanguard's just a, you know, a microcosm of the market more broadly, serious people generally don't panic. And you don't see that at a Vanguard. I assume it's true at a Fidelity and a Euro price that you don't see panic where before they had a chance to get experienced and educated, my generation of baby boomers would react. So do nothing should be your default option during a bear market. And if you can, dollar cost average down. Even better. But don't panic. Makes a whole lot of sense. So you wrote the first version of the book about 20 years ago. What made you think, hey, now's the time to update this? Why bring it into the modern era, and who are you hoping actually reads it? So with respect to the why now, um, a, a few things. I've been asked a lot over the years, would you, would you do another version of this? And uh, frankly, the environment is, is what prompts it. And it, you know, if you take out last March, um, we've been 11-year bull market. The headlines are... Um, you, know, you read the headlines about investing, and, and it's uh, speculation is very prominent again. 
the headlines are somebody made a lot of money on GameStop. You don't read a lot about those who, you know, got killed and so on and so forth. Your trading is the new thing. You can, oh, I saw an ad on TV. You can start a trading account at one firm with as little as $5. I almost fell out of my chair. So it, it was catalyst to say, you know what, it feels a lot like when I started writing the first book was just after the NASDAQ bubble, but lots of lessons to affirm there. And this one felt like it felt like a good time to do it. Um, so I literally started it right around, frankly, when you made a quite prescient call that said, don't assume the bull market is over because of the pandemic. Uh, it's right around then we started working on this. The other important part of it, uh, frankly, is um, uh, a bunch has changed, importantly, that's made this to be a fantastic time to be an investor. You know, uh, give you just um, give you two examples. Um, one, the advent of, of the variety of advice choices today at Different price points is staggering. It's fantastic. You, you know, you can buy a robo advisor. You get advice from a robo advisor or a robo advisor plus the human being, or you can have a uh, a wealth manager in a family office and everything in between. But it's all much lower cost than it was 20 years ago. And frankly, there's this whole cohort of people, baby boomers, who really, my own view is, need to make a conscious decision to do it yourself in retirement or or find an advisor. And today you can do that in a variety of ways. It's a fantastic thing. We provide advice in the book about how to do that best. The second thing is, um, you know, even 20 years ago, Vanguard was a bit of an anomaly around cost, and we preached it, and it was a very, it's a very important part of the culture. But if you look at the cost of investing, total cost of ownership, if you will, for individuals today, and how it's changed in 20 years, it frees you up with lots of different ways you can think about investing, you know, obvious one being ETFs and how important they are, how low cost, how tax efficient. So lots had changed. The market said, um, you know, it's pretty frenzied in a sense, not the market necessarily, but the, the, the chatter around the market. Um, so it felt like a good time to do it. First book I, I wrote in the foreword that I was writing it for my kids who were in their late teens, early 20s, um, and I hope that they and their cohorts would uh, get something from this. The interesting part is how many people my, now my age who said, this is just what I needed because it, it helps me think about my future uh, in a different stage in life. And frankly, I hope it's the same cadre that, that uh, gets some value out of this book as well. People who are emerging investors and then people who look and are a veteran and say, let's go back. Let me go back and test how I think about things against this template. Not saying that this is, you know, this is truth. This is uh, my experience based on lots of exposure to people. Um, but uh, I hope it's kind of hits both those cohorts. Uh, the last book that we we still get requests from people in other countries to translate the first book, and uh, oh. uh, so we've deferred them a bit, and we'll have them, uh, and we'll we'll get them to translate this one. Let's talk a little bit about some of the lessons you've learned as it applied to 2020, which was clearly a crazy year between the rise of Robinhood and GameStop and all sorts of. Manias, what do you make of the rise of the retail investors? 
have they learned the wrong lessons in 2020 or or is this just board gambling and when things go back to normal their investment posture will go back to normal so my own view is it's just another cycle uh you know that has is no different than you know when discount brokerage came in in the late 80 in the late 80s and you had it and it was a bull market and oh boy i can trade trade cheaply now right um you know it was the dot-com phenomenon at the end of the 20th century it was house flipping right you recall in uh 2006, seven. So all of these things are high profile. Uh, I would call them fads, not substantive in terms of uh, fundamental changes in the way people should think about or you know will think about once they get to once they realize that investing is not a game. Frankly, trading is not investing. There's, there's a business called trading, but it has nothing to do with investing in that sense. So I think it's cyclical. Um, you know, it makes great headlines. It inevitably makes for great hard lessons learned for people. And, you know, my hope, frankly, is that people aren't doing this, the headline-making stuff with the serious money, to be blunt there. Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, you know, somebody wants to play around at the edges, uh, trading stocks, uh, trading Bitcoin, do whatever they want to do, that's fine. Um, but serious money needs to be treated seriously. And, again, it has for any of us as individuals, the idea that we're going to trade our way to wealth is a uh, fool's errand. Huh. Pretty sharp observation. I never imagined for a minute that $8 trading was some sort of a speed bump, but it seems like once these apps went to free, suddenly everybody and their brother became a day trader. How much of this behavior is caused by free, and, and what does it mean to the young people who are starting out with trading as as entertainment? Well, that's the interesting phraseology. Um, is it entertainment or is it investing, right? And as long as you think of it as entertainment, you know, it, it, I guess it's no different than slot machines or, or going to a casino. But it is not investing. And again, I think the question is, uh, how and when do you learn that lesson? Right. And uh, free is absolutely a, a uh, is one of the things that abets this, no question. But listen, uh, momentum is another part of it. And, you know, in a sense, everybody's smart in a momentum market if you're in the right sectors. But momentum investing has never proven to be a long term viable strategy. Right. Substantive value uh, uh, is how people make money. So, you know, I actually don't worry much about it. Um, I, it's a classic place where I tune out the noise, looking at the headlines and reading it. Uh, and again, I think as long as using your term, it's packaged as entertainment, it's, it's, it is what it is. You certainly hope that uh, people won't put trading accounts into 401k plans where most young people will do their first investing, right? As long as those plans stay in a sensible mode, I think you're going to segregate investment and financial security from entertainment and uh, and, and high-profile trading. Hmm. Interesting. So let me um, wax philosophical with you a moment. One of the chapters of the book, you urge investors to define enough for themselves. Explain your thinking on that and, and why do investors need to understand the concept of enough? 
it's such an important concept because it will determine how much risk you want to or can take in a in a in your investment portfolio. Um, and again, not defining enough plays out tragically in in uh, so many different ways. Either somebody thinks I've done really well, boy, I can do even better, and it's at an inappropriate time or inappropriately executed. Um, and they wake up saying, boy, if I if I had a million dollars and that's what I needed, perhaps I should have been far more conservative. Just take that as an example, because a million dollars is going to serve me well for the rest of my life. But instead, you double down and you end up with half a million. Bad decisions, right? Uh, alternatively, somebody say, I have a million dollars and my time horizon is perpetual because I'm going to uh, my a state is going to go to charity. You know, you have enough in bucket A, bucket B can be a more aggressive portfolio than somebody might recommend for you at a certain age. Um, you know, 529 plan uh, accounts are a great example of this, where you accumulate money up to a point in time, and then the glide path takes it down to very conservative positioning when, it, when the kid turns 18, because you know there's a time certain you're going to need that money. So I think that that's that's a metaphor for the way all of us, whether an institution or an individual, should think about um, uh, assets and how the, those assets, what those assets need to fund for us. And you know, you've seen some universities make the mistake of being overly aggressive, even when they were particularly well endowed, paying a big price and then pay, playing catch up. And that's mm. that's a shame. That's a shame because that's real money affecting real students' ability to go to that university. So I, so I learned this from a, a wise older gentleman many, many years ago, and I continue to talk to people about it. Uh, and it's a question you should ask yourself regularly because enough may change. It may be greater or less than you thought it was at a different point in time. But it's the perfect time to then reassess your ability to take risk or your willingness to take risk. Huh. It's funny because I know the book was written last year, but as I was as I was reading that chapter and crossing the headlines was the news about the highly leveraged Archegos head, hedge fund. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. Archegos, Archegos. Who has $20 billion of personal wealth and leverages it to the hilt to the point where they lose that? It, it's just an astonishing lesson for people that there has to be a, 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 a line where you say, okay, I'm good. I'm, I may play with a little bit of money here, but I'm going to pull this $20 billion off the table because it would be horrible if it went to zero in two days, which is what it's, happened. It's absolutely true. And that, that, that's as good an example as, as you can find. And, you know, somebody will counter with so-and-so double down and then they had twice as much money. But that's a bad risk reward trade-off, right? And uh, But it happens a lot. Happens a lot. You see it with you see it with sophisticated pools of capital, who make similar mistakes in endowed places, and um, it's why again it's a it's a it's a one word uh, investment governor, if you will, is that word enough? And again, that that's when you think you have enough, then you take a you make a conscious decision on which fork you want to take in the road. Yeah, the regret minimization framework is more important than how much alpha you're generating in any given quarter, to, to say the very well, that, least. Well, that's one of the other, right? Uh, there's a chapter in the book called 
I'm in Boca, and the very short story is a guy named Jason Dwight from the Wall Street Journal was in Boca, asked a bunch of people whether their mark, whether their investment portfolios had outperformed the market or not. He says some said yes, some said no. But the guy he remembers most is the guy say, "Why do what do I care? I'm in Boca." <laughs> Classic, absolutely classic. That, that's very smart because the only benchmark any one of us has is our goals and objectives, right? How we did against the S&P or how we did against, you know, how Harvard did against Yale and their endowment turns into a headline every year, and it's irrelevant. They have different financial situations. So what is Harvard's, what is Harvard's BOCA and what is Yale's BOCA is much more important than how they did against versus each other. Huh. And that, that's uh, the critical part of this. Absolutely true. So let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the industry today. And and I have to begin with some of the attacks we've seen recently on indexing, that it's Marxist, that it's un-American, that it, it's an antitrust violation. What do you think of some of these sort of wacky esoteric attacks on basic passive investing? Well, first, it's um, they're just ill-founded. They just put it that way. You know, they're the similar. Some of them are the same as came out when AT and T ran the first index fund in 1970 or 69, or when we came out with the first index mutual fund. It's un-American. It's Marxist, etc. So, you know, the data data uh, to uh, to say that it's anything but a highly successful investment strategy is just plain and correct. So, uh, and then the idea that now's the time to be active, active meaning high cost, active is flawed. Um, so the sort of investment arguments are just uh, repeating what's been repeated continually over half a century at this stage. Um, you know, some of the other academic-ish arguments are just as ill-founded, the antitrust idea, um, the sense that there's too much concentration in voting and so on and so forth. Um, again, I, I have a strongly held view, uh, not having anything to do with uh, uh, my former role at Vanguard, that the day the index funds own half the stock in companies, and there'll be more providers who are in that half the stock ownership, uh, it's going to be a great day for the markets because CEOs will have and companies will have permanent shareholders who will be interested in strategy, not the next two-week sales volume. And I think it will free companies up to think long-term in a way that they aren't totally able to do today, right? And so to me, somehow promoting a myth that indexing is anti-competitive or indexing is bad for markets or indexing is uh, a bad investment strategy is just flawed logic and wishful thinking. The, the critics don't say it's a bad investing strategy because the data overwhelms them. So they're they're forced to fall back to things like voting rights or, or antitrust. Uh, if it was a bad investing strategy, I think the market would resolve that. But I'm kind of intrigued about your point of 50%. Are you suggesting once half of the ownership of U.S. public companies are held by indexes, company management are then free to focus on the long term instead of the next quarter's earnings? That, that would be my perspective, yeah, actually, because, um, you know, uh, Wall Street it does great research, but they get paid for activity. 
And what you want as a owner of, uh, if you're a permanent holder of a company, is you want companies to build great businesses, not to facilitate activity. And so if you can have, you know, there'll be always be people buying and selling your stocks. There'll be plenty of uh, transparency and liquidity and market clearing exercises to value the company. But uh, the idea that I can talk to seven or eight or nine permanent shareholders, if you will, about strategic choices, whether it's in a crisis like a year ago or it's long term, I think will give uh, manage, the good, the best management even more confidence, confidence to think long term. I think it's a very mm-hmm. important thing. And you look at, you know, controlled companies or you look at private equity backed companies, you know, depending on the, the structure and private companies, um, you know, they can behave differently. And sometimes it's at the margin, but sometimes it's core strategic choices that they can make. And so uh, I, I believe they will. the markets will be advantaged by companies being able to think in a way where today there's, there's just so much noise in the system for them. So let me switch gears on you and, and ask you about the classic 60-40 portfolio. We're now seeing the lowest yield we've ever seen on that mix of stocks and bonds. Uh, what do you make of that? And are there any viable alternatives to traditional fixed income investing? So, you know, uh, I think 60-40 ends up is, is challenged, Barry, right now as, as a matter of strategy because of going low going in yields. What's likely to be, I'd be interested in your view, positive correlation to stocks at these low levels Right. Um, and so uh, I encourage and we encourage people in the book to think hard about alternatives. The, the, the last chapter in this book is called Where Do My Income Go? You know, your income from short term cash reserves is down 98 percent for five years for intermediate for 10 year Treasury, it's down 60 or 70 percent over that same period. And so you come back, and, and I think it's important for investors to take a step back and say, if I've got a time horizon of some uh, duration, not next week or next year or four or five years from now, you know, there are fabulous companies and portfolios of companies that yield the same as a 10-year treasury. And am I, would I, should I be willing to take equity, more equity risk, get the same income with a call option on growth by upping my equity exposure um, today because for the foreseeable future, uh, the traditional role of bonds is going to be unlikely to play out the way it has over very long periods of time. And the question is, when do we get out of this very low yield period? I don't see many very viable option uh, alternatives to uh, to uh, traditional fixed income assets. Frankly, you know, certainly not high yield bonds, which is a misnomer today. You know, you you play it through. You know, there are segments of the equity markets, whether it's REITs or something else, that offer a good yield. Uh, but it feels strange to say it in the midst of a long bull market, but. Uh, my own sense is that people with any kind of time horizon should be thinking about income being generated by stocks because, you know, over time, the dividend growth of a diversified portfolio of stocks is far out, how far outpaced, outpaced inflation. 
And if all you get is that income growth, you've done well. If you get capital growth to go with it, it's it's a good trade to take that incremental uh, equity risk today because of the unique period of time we're in. Really unique. You know, if you, if you look back, it's a 700-year bull market in bonds, if you look at some charts from England. <laughs> right. That is a 70-year bull market in the United States. And so uh, fixed income doesn't look very attractive. Right. I think we reached the same conclusion you did. If if you're young enough, 70-30 or 80-20 makes much more sense than 60-40. But the caveat is, hey, if you're in your 60s or if you're a few years away from retirement, that additional risk isn't worth the additional return because, as we see all too regularly, 30 40 50% corrections – you know, those 100-year floods come along every 10 years. We we probably need to rename the 100-year flood. Yeah, it's true. But um, the, the, the one factor you don't have in that, in that equation is what are you drawing off your assets, okay? And so the best thing you can do is draw as little as possible from your assets. It allows you to take more risk with your assets. Makes sense. And so that, you know, when people ask me for my best financial advice, I say live below your means. They want something sophisticated. That's what I give them. And I think it's very important today to say, you know, that 4 or 5% draw is too much, likely, from a retirement portfolio. Can you live on three? And if you can't live on three, you can probably take some more capital risk uh, to, to make those assets grow and endure in real terms for the longer term. Especially given longer lifespans, that's another factor. I think I have a time, I'm, I'll be 67 in a couple of months. I think I have a 30 year time harass. Wow, that's pretty, I hope. pretty I, amazing. My family's life, legacy is pretty good long, longevity, but that's the way I think about things. And I think most people at 67 should be thinking 20 years. That's long time. That's long term. But get yeah. your spending, get the, your, the spend, the outgo part of this correct is a critical part for individuals. It's also a critical part for institutions critical part for institutions. Lower your expectations and, and then live within those. Amen. So we're talking about yield. Let's look at the flip side of that. What do you make of all the inflation chatter these days? Do you think that's a viable risk to portfolios? And, and how much of this is just transitory noise? So I have to say, I am a child of inflation. Of the, you know, I came out of college in 1976 and stagflation lived through the next five or six years before Chairman Volcker, you know, took it on. So I actually have a sort of inherent worry about it. And I do think it's real. I think, you know, I don't believe in modern monetary theory. Uh, I think the question of how much money you can pump into the system is a really important one. And I don't think we're going back to the late 60s, early, the late 70s, early 80s uh, from an inflation standpoint. But 30, we've had 30 years of minimal inflation. And I think the noise for me is valuable because even if it proves to be wrong, it educates people to think about it. But I talk, I counsel people to factor some inflation into their own financial planning in a way that we haven't experienced in 30 years. I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong, but uh, my economics training tells me uh, uh, be, be wary of too much liquidity in a system and uh, and the, the, the pressure on prices and whether globalization can offset it again like it has in the past, whether technology can offset it, fair question. But 
I would worry more about it for the next 15 years than it than it's been relevant in the prior 15 years. Huh. Quite interesting. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the industry in general. We saw a massive purchase pretty recently. Schwab took over TD Ameritrade. That's had a big impact on the industry. We, we've seen a variety of other um, mergers and acquisitions between big companies and smaller fintechs, between other big companies. What are your thoughts on, on these, especially given Vanguard's history of not really playing in those waters? So listen, one of the great assets to the investing public, in my view, is the tremendous sense of competition for all segments of our business, right? Um, and if you just look over time, uh, whether it's the asset management business, the brokerage business, the advice business, um, the inherent entrepreneurism creates new competitors, whether they're fintechs or whether it's your firm seven years ago in the advice space. Um, you know, Schwab and Ameritrade came together, big impact on the financial advisor community scale for the for the firm. Um, but, you know, in the grand scheme of things, none of us is that big a player, interestingly, when you think about it. So right. I think we'll continue to watch. We'll see certain areas where scale really matters a lot. Take, you know, index fund management, very important in that regard. But there'll be continual growth in boutique advisory firms, boutique investment management firms. And I think that's one of the great parts of the business is the dynamism of the business just forces every firm in a entrenched position to get better. And so whenever I see deals like this happen, I think it's good for the investing public at the end of the day. I do think that, uh, you know, obviously I'm a huge fan of Vanguard. Organic growth is always better than inorganic growth. And because uh, you do it culturally, you don't have integration challenges. And so to see what Vanguard has accomplished, I think it's a tribute. And the market says we like that that strategy. I mean, uh, something appropriate couldn't be bolted on to the firm. But, um, you know, so there'll be different ways of building businesses uh, in the business. But sort of generically, my own view is it's all good because, Nobody in this space should be worried about monopoly power because it's just not there isn't anybody with enough oomph in this relatively fragmented business to create monopoly power. So uh, it just enhances competition. So let's talk about one of the small boutiques that are out there. You joined the board of Rockefeller Capital Management. Even though the company itself has been around a while, obviously a very different animal than the giant Vanguard Group. What motivated you to work with a smaller firm, and what's that experience like compared to, you know, the behemoth that's Vanguard Group? Well, in a, in a, in a, it's, it's been a great experience. Let me just say that right off the bat. The Rockefeller family's been tremendous uh, parts of this three-year journey, the, the back, Viking, the backing firm has, but Greg Fleming has put together a, a tremendous leadership team deeply focused on providing advice to high net worth families. And uh, very much, and, and in a sense, complementary in some ways to, to the way Vanguard does its business. Um, and so they're very focused on, in a sense, doing one thing well, providing advice. 
Rockefeller Asset Management provides is a niche specialist in uh, ESG investing. And the family office and the private wealth management businesses at Rockefeller are deeply focused on their, in a sense, small niches. Uh, but they want to be as deep as anyone, as expert in it, as anyone in those uh, in those channels. And so it's been a lot of fun. Been uh, tremendous to watch uh, Greg lead this business and the kind of people he's attracted. The clients who have uh, left generally much larger brokerage house uh, based advisory business to come to Rockefeller Capital. And uh, so far, it's been a, a terrific success story. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed it, uh, frankly, because it's very different than where I spent my professional life uh, uh, at Vanguard prior to that. So fun to watch and more to come. And let's talk about another board. You're, you're the chairman of Notre Dame's Board of Trustees. What's that experience like and, and how involved are you with the Notre Dame endowment? So when I first came on the board, I went on the investment committee, as you might imagine, and we've had a tremendously successful endowment management uh, operation there. Man named Scott Malpass led it for 30-ish years. Mike Donovan now runs it today. I would say, and the record has been outstanding um, over time because they follow the principles of patience and research and and, and, and so on. Uh, so that was a gratifying way to get to know Notre Dame. Being the board chair is a tremendous honor. They have an outstanding leadership team, top to bottom, through you know lots of challenging times. You know the pandemic. This has been as big a uh, challenge uh, for higher education as anything in a century, really, in many ways. And you know uh, we decided to be open with in-person classes. We decided last May made it happen, delivered 85% of our classes in person, invited all the students back to campus for both semesters. So it's been tremendously gratifying. You know, my kids are all Notre Dame grads, so it's it's a privilege to, to serve the place that affected our family uh, so positively. But it's been a great experience, frankly, to learn another business as well, try to bring some capabilities, as does our board. We have a wonderful board of trustees with diverse backgrounds and diverse experiences. So you see the value of that outside in view look from a, from a board of trustees. But as the board chair, you're more deeply involved in learning a lot about what is a critically important business of this country and a very successful entrant in that business in Notre Dame. So it's been one of the highlights of my professional career, frankly. Hmm. Quite interesting. I know we only and we made and for... we made the football playoffs, which is always huh. a good thing. That's right, and they actually did a pretty good job of of maintaining a, a healthy team and staff in an in a period where a lot of colleges were having a hard time not having half the team catch uh, COVID. Well, it tells, it, you, know, you you see these student athletes and across the board, it, um, we've had very good results. But it tells you a lot about the character of the kids and coaches. You know our our coaches at Notre Dame, they will tell you first and foremost, they're educators. Right. They want to win on the field, but they're educators. And they have tried to build co- strong cultures in their programs. And from the top down, our athletic director, Jack Swarbrick, is a big uh, proponent of culture. And to watch these kids, what they sacrificed, you know, they sacrificed being a college kid at some level, right, to avoid getting COVID and uh Across the board with our teams, it's been a, a great outcome. So uh, never been prouder of the student-athletes, the coaches, and the people involved in athletics, but the student body broadly as well. Um, 
the way they've handled adversity. You know, sometimes college kids get a bad rap. They don't deserve it. They're, they're tremendous young people, and you're just proud to be able to try to help them a little bit in a role like being a trustee or a board chair. So I only have you for a few more minutes. Let me jump to my favorite questions that I ask all of my guests. Starting with, what are you streaming these days? Give us your favorite Netflix or Amazon Prime shows or what podcasts you're listening to. Well, we seem to have become, my wife and I seem to have become uh, tremendous fans of British cop shows. You know, things like DCI Banks or Endeavor or Prime Suspects. So that's, if you looked at our Amazon or uh, Netflix accounts, you'd see a lot of those um, uh, podcasts. No kidding, and apologize for this. Uh, Masters in Business is one that's uh, a regular weekly listen. I have to say thank you for doing it. Um, Freakonomics is another one I find very interesting. It gives you a different uh, point of view, and uh, and you can't live without Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which is not as good without the audience, but it's still a great way to spend a uh, – I usually I, – I listen to it Sunday after, Saturday afternoon after it's on the radio on Saturday morning where I am. But uh, been a lot, lot, lot more TV watching during the pandemic than there has been in the prior forty years of our marriage. I can assure you. I'm glad to hear I'm not the only one suffering through uh, an excess of uh, television. And, and thank you for the kind words about about the show. Let's talk a little bit about mentors who helped shape your career. Well, we've talked about Jack. Obviously, that was um, a great privilege to to, uh, to to work with him and learned a ton from him. I had the great fortune of having a, a father who's one of these great American success stories. You know, his father was a ditch digger and then got a good job as a janitor. <laughs> and he ended up as the chairman CEO and built a great bank in Boston. It started as a mutual savings bank, became a public company. And, you know, on snow days, we get the day off, he'd say, come on, get in the car, we'll go in the office. But I grew up in Boston, and he would stand at the front door and greet everybody who made it in on a snow day to the bank and thank them wow. for coming. It's those kind of lessons that you can't make up. And so um, that that was a 60-something, or I guess a 50-something year uh, mentorship that was uh, tremendous. And one of the I just call out, you know, my first boss out of college, a guy named Bill McKenna, the New York Bank for Savings. A similar story, actually. Um, uh, a very blue-collar background, the president of a bank. And he taught me what it's like to be a businessman at 21 years old, you know. And he, he hard feedback, great feedback. Uh, I still consider him a great friend 45 years later. So how good is that? And there's tons of others. But those three, when I always think about uh, how they affected my life, you know, in from at different periods of time. But uh, what a gift, right? And you do it. I hope I've been able to try to pay it back a little bit by mentoring some other people, uh, and you hope somebody names you somewhere along the way. Tell us about some of your favorite books. What are you reading right now? Well, I love historical biographies. It's funny, my wife reads fiction all the time, and I haven't read a fiction book in 20 years. So I, I love historical biographies. I feel like it fills in the gaps of what I didn't learn in, uh, didn't learn in high school or college. And, you know, so you know, always love, and I, and I love Leaders, interesting leaders, you know, Doris Kearns Goodwin, Kurt Goodwin's book, Holy Pulpit, about Teddy Roosevelt, uh, The Splendor and the Vine, about um, about Churchill. Right now, I'm reading a long biography uh, by Andrew uh, Roberts about Napoleon and learning a ton. What an unbelievable, uh, what an un- what an unbelievable 
life that is, that much more so than I ever knew. So I find those as twofers. You learn about an interesting person. You also learn about the history. Um, but you got to pepper them with some other things. One of the ones I've read recently that's great it's, is uh, it's called The World Beneath Our Feet. And it's about the race to climb Mount Everest. And you learn about geopolitical issues. And so I, I, I probably don't read enough for fun. I read to try to fill in the holes in my knowledge base uh, more than anything. But uh, there's nothing better than sitting down for two hours with a great book, is there? Huh. No, not at all. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who is interested in a career in investment management or uh, investment advisory? Do it. It's a great profession. It's a, it's a, it really is a great profession. You're, you know, our business is one that's so interesting because it changes every minute, every hour, every day. There's something in the newspaper that's going to affect your business and your clients. So for me, um, I don't think enough people go into investment advisory, frankly, and I, and I hope more and more will because there is uh, a big demand for it. It's very gratifying. Uh, it's constantly changing, as I said, uh, and you can, you can really do well for yourself while doing good for your clients. That's a great combo. Last piece, I always tell people, find a great firm. Find a great firm, and if you're lucky enough, Find a great mentor at a great firm to help you uh, learn, accelerate your learning as you move along. So uh, I'm very bullish on the industry I was in. I'm very bullish in the industry you're in. I think they each have tremendous uh, psychic gratifications as well as financial rewards for people. So uh, uh, I'm pitching them all the time to people. Huh. Really interesting. And our final question what do you know about the world of investing today that you wish you knew 30 or 40 years ago when you were first getting started? You know, in a sense, I think I knew that to produce differentiated results, you really had to be very different from the market. Um, but I obviously know that a lot more soundly today, the statistics, but more, more valuably the experience. Um, you know, one of my sons runs a a long-only investment firm, and his diversified fund has 14 stocks, and his non-diversified fund has nine. That stock uh, fund has nine. Wow! And I wouldn't have him invest—not that he asked me—but I wouldn't have him invest in a, any other way, because otherwise, if he's going to give you a beta of 97 and R squared of 98, buy our total stock market fund. Right. right and and the differentiation between being willing to be wrong and take risk is the only way you're going to deliver results that are differentiated and uh, valuable to people because the alternative is not hypothetical any longer. The alternative you can invest any way you want in an indexed portfolio. So that 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 it's an affirmation of what I learned early in my career from some uh, tremendously successful uh, portfolio managers. But I wish I was as sure of it 30 years ago as I am today. Quite fascinating. Jack, thank you for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking to Jack Brennan. He is the former CEO and chairman of investing giant, the Vanguard Group. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of our previous 400 such discussions, you could find those at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you feed your podcast fix. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. 
write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Sign up for my daily reads at ritholtz.com. Check out my weekly column at bloomberg.com slash opinion. You can follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank our crack team that helps put this conversation together each week. Tim Harrow is my audio engineer. Atika Valbron is my project manager. Michael Boyle is my producer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.